So when we were in Israel, Dave and I, we had this interesting experience. We were traveling around with this tour guide, Palestinian Christian guy by the name of Rayid. Wonderful guy. Great teacher. Just really blessed our trip. And he would take us to all of these ancient cities. And as we were going to one of those cities, he would say, you know, a, a city in the ancient Near East, in the, in the old world of Jesus' day and before that, required three things. First off, it required that it be defendable. They had these walls around them. Often they built up on a hill, Jerusalem's on a hill, so that when people had to come attack, they had to go uphill. It gave the people inside the city the, the advantage. And then second, you had, you had to have a transportation route. It would be nice if there was a road passing by because people didn't build cities where there were no roads. And so where the roads went, the cities got built. And then there was this third thing, and he said this is the most important. He called it the source of life. What do you think it was? Water, Right? I grew up in Michigan. 20% of the world's fresh water is connected to the Great Lakes. Four of them are connected to Michigan. So a huge percentage of the fresh water in the world was connected to me. You know, anytime we wanted to drink water, we could, you know, go about anywhere and find one. And literally Lake Michigan, when I was a kid, was clean enough you could drink it from the center of the lake. That's really amazing, isn't it? Lakes aren't usually like that. But Lake Michigan was and Lake Superior was when I was a kid. Lake Huron, Lake Ontario, don't do that. Uh, But, you know, water, water is the life, it's a source of life for us and we all know it. We need water. Most of us, you know, we don't, we take this for granted because in our houses you can go to the restroom and there's water, right? Turn on the spigot, there's water. You go outside, you get a garden hose, you go to the kitchen, there's water. You probably have a second restroom. You might have one in the laundry. Um, downstairs, you might have a, a, a water source down there. Sometimes I'll walk into my house and nobody will be there. I'll come home from church and I'll get there before the kids and I'll be listening and I'll hear water running and I'll have to think. Where could this be? Is it on the second floor? Is it on the first floor? Is it in the basement? And I have to travel around to all of those different locations trying to figure out which kid and where they left the faucet on so I can save my water bill. We take this for granted. But in the Middle East, you can't take it for granted. People literally uh, die for lack of water. And one of the things Raid, our tour guide, was telling us is, listen, if you go long for, without water, or if you travel a far distance and you don't know where you're going to get your water, you're going to end up in trouble very quickly. The, the temperatures in southern Israel can get up to 140 degrees. And there are these so- storms called sandstorms that go across the Judean desert, and they just whiplash those mountains, and any traveler caught in one of those storms must have water. Well, they go to great lengths to get this water. One of the things we did when we were there, we actually traveled to Hezekiah's Tunnel. It was about 700 B.C., 2,700 years ago, that the the great king Hezekiah, deciding for the defense of Jerusalem, that he was going to build a tunnel to a water source that was outside the walls. And how did he think he was going to do that? He dug straight through solid rock, 533 feet. One football field and another two-thirds of a football field. And I walked through it with water ranging from my knees to my hips, walking through this water. And a whole group of us walked through. It was really interesting. One girl got scared. She started singing, you know, um, because it's all dark and you have little flashlights. But we walked through it. Amazing experience. That's how they got the water into Jerusalem. Well, you know, water is still the source of life for you and me. We may take it for granted. But Jesus used this thing called water often in his teaching. Because it's so important, he wanted to express to us, to communicate with us, that that water and things like water are essential for our life. He gets in a conversation in John chapter 4, and I'm going to read it for you. Uh, These are, I didn't write down the verses, David, you're going to have trouble with this, but Jesus answered this woman who he met at a well. And she 
came upon the well. His disciples had gone into a town called Sychar. And this woman was sitting by the well, or Jesus was sitting by the well, and he addressed this woman who was a Samaritan. And Jews and and Samaritans didn't talk. And so this woman was shocked when all of a sudden he came to her and said, hey, could you get me a drink? And she asked in this kind of credulous way, incredulous way, saying, I'm not sure whether you should be even talking to me. I'm a woman. We're in the middle of nowhere, outside the town at a well. And Jesus answered it this way. It says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water from? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, that water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. You've heard these words before. But Jesus uses this this water, two parts hydrogen and one part oxygen, right? And he says, literally, you have to have that. And you're here out in the, in the desert because you need that from this well that was dug hundreds and hundreds of years ago. And you're here to access this water. Well, let me tell you that I want to give you a water that will continue to last. And at first, she doesn't get it, right? Who would? You know, living water. Where I come from, if you see living water, if there's anything living in the water, you don't drink that water, right? But here... He's saying, I'll give you living water and it will absolutely be transformative in your life. You'll get eternal life from this. That verse we read at the very beginning, for it is by grace you have been saved. Let's think about that for a second. You know, a few weeks ago, Tim was sharing with us about the two thieves on the cross. There were these words that Jesus spoke to one of them. Today you will be with me in paradise. And you can picture these two thieves on the cross. And they used two different types of imagination. They both had imagination. One looked and saw the Son of God sitting there on the cross, and what he saw was a criminal, right? Now, maybe that's the normal thing to see when you're looking at a person being crucified. And he said, this guy isn't who he said he was. And he actually looked at him like, you're not all that why in the world do you think you can preach all this stuff and he actually mocks jesus on the cross and he uses his imagination in exactly the wrong way he's looking at the real world and he's thinking that what he sees is evidence of what actually is but then there's this other criminal and he's sitting on the other side and he looks at jesus and he and he says you know i see beyond this moment i see something else i see beyond the physical and what i see is a need that i have and this man has it and even though he's being crucified just like me Would you remember me, Jesus, he asks. Would you remember me? And his imagination is completely different than the other criminals. Well, go with me for a second, because what Jesus is saying in this passage is very similar. He's saying you need to use your imagination to understand that there is a life source below the life source that we usually think of. We know we need water. We know we need oxygen. We know we need food. But here, let me explain to you that what you need is something completely different and maybe more. Your spirit needs this thing. You're spiritually starving, ma'am. You're spiritually thirsting, in the words of Jesus. And I can give you water that will, it, it will go on forever. It will build a well within your life and it will overflow your life and it will spread to others. You can imagine she's a little bit incredulous. What is he talking about? He's talking about grace. He's talking about grace. Jesus walked in the presence of the Father God, and he had this connection, this relationship. And what he's offering this woman is saying, listen, I would love to give you this walk. You know, when I was a kid, when I thought of grace, I always thought of one word, forgiveness. And I knew I needed it. 
I mean, you know, if you would have grown up with me, you would have known I needed it as well. You know, most of us know we need that sort of grace. And when we talk about grace, we say, well, yeah, that is God forgiving us for our failures. Well, that's not all that grace is. Grace is the walk with the Father God. And what Jesus is offering this woman is that if you will come and connect with me, I will connect you to God and you will live within this gracious existence. You need to use your imagination to get there. But let me help you understand that grace is more than just something that gets you back to zero after you're at minus 10. Grace is the thing that takes you all the way, walking with the Father God, walking with what he's doing in your life, walking through what he wants you to experience. He will take you all the way to this amazing walk with him. And all of that transforms your life to the point where he uses this word at the very end of the passage. This spring of water will well up inside you and it will give you eternal life. Eternal life is much more than a quantity of life, right? How many of you would just love to live forever? No. Not if you're not, if you're not crazy. I mean, my body is degenerating. Some of you have commented on that, you know? Honestly, I mean, I'm, I'm slipping a little bit and I know it. Shelby and I were getting ready for church this morning and I looked in the mirror and I said, is it my imagination or do I have less hair than I used to have? It's true. I don't want to go on and on and on and proliferate this loss of hair to the point where I just have none left. You know, well, that's a little ridiculous. But eternal life means something more than life everlasting. We know that we're going to live forever with Jesus. And of course, we cross over that line into his presence. But there's something more to it. It's a quality of life. Jesus is offering this woman who's been looking for all sorts of things. She's actually had several husbands and is living with a guy who's not her husband now. And he's saying, listen, you've been looking for this it factor in your life. Let me tell you what it is. It's grace. And God wants to give it to you. And you're not going to find it in a guy, not this guy, not that guy or the other. You're going to find it with me. And I would love to give it to you. But it requires that your imagination be shifted and that you realize that besides the things that you know you need, you actually need spiritually this thing called grace. You need the presence of God in your life on a daily basis. In John chapter 6, Jesus talks about this again. And I think I might have the, the passage for you, Dave. John six thirty-five through 40. Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me and still you do not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life. There's that word again. And I will raise them up at the last day. You know, the picture is this. Jesus is so connected with the Father God through the Spirit. That's the Trinity, right? In the Christian church, we talk about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And and Jesus walked in amazing grace. And the reason why is because he walked with the Spirit of God. Some people think he was this supernatural, absolutely amazing God who knew everything. Now, I think he was 100% God, but I think he gave up knowing everything when he came to earth. The reason why he knew so many things that seemed supernatural is because he walked that closely with the Spirit of God. He was in the know with what God the Father was doing because he was walking with the Spirit, and that was the experience of grace. And so what he's saying is, listen, I do what the Father calls me to do, not just what I want to do. 
I walk out the will of God. And it's not just that obedient son who's doing it because his dad says he has to. No, it's because he wants to walk it out. And as he's walking it out, he's walking the presence of God into this world from city to city in northern Israel as he ministers to leper, to blind people, to prostitutes, to tax collectors. He was the grace of God incarnate, living amidst people. The well of water that he was preaching about in John 4, saying, listen, woman, I could give it to you because I have it here. And why is that? Because he lived so connected to the Father God. And then he says, this is what I want to give you. This is the life I want to give you. Most Christians don't live this way. Wouldn't you agree? Most of us, people who have really come to faith, we don't walk in this level of grace. We do not walk with a present God active in our lives. We walk around kind of going, you know, we need to experience more of God, but we'll get around to it next year. Or we need to have this sort of experience with God, but we just don't know how it works. And we, we, we became Christians in third grade, or we became Christians in our early 20s, or we became Christians some point back there, but we're not walking necessarily with this relationship with God where we go, it's amazing. You know, C.S. Lewis wrote that when he became a Christian, and sometimes afterwards, he, he thought the people in his life faded because God became so real. God became more real to him than it than the people who he was connected with. Wouldn't it be amazing if God was more real to you than the person sitting next to you in that chair? Wouldn't that be amazing? That's what grace can do. And some people actually experience that. And Jesus says that's how he lived. It always seemed like he was having a conversation with somebody else, not just the 12 disciples who were surrounding him, didn't it? Another passage, John chapter 7 talks about, this is verses 37 through 39. And it talks about Jesus coming to Jerusalem on the last feast of the year. The Jerusalem feast cycle had seven feasts. Okay, and the and the the seventh one was called the Feast of Booths, and it was the end of the the second harvest season where you would bring all your tithes. And every day in this feast, the the priest would bring a bowl of water to the temple courts, and they would pray for rain, and eventually they would even pour this water out and let it run down across the temple flagstones, and they would pray for God to bless their next set of crops. They would ask for grace. That's what it was. And if it rained during this feast, everybody said, "Well, that is a good omen." Because we've prayed for it, and God's already bringing it. And they would get all excited, and it was kind of an unusual time for rain. Well, Jesus goes on this day when they were going to bring this bowl of water, and he stands in the temple, and he says these words. Just listen to them. They're important when you hear them from that standpoint. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time the Spirit had not been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. In other words, he was walking so closely with the Spirit, and he was saying, if you will come up here, you don't need water in your crops next year. You don't need water to be poured over over these dried stones. What you need is real water, and I have it. I have the Spirit of God, and if you will become a follower of mine, you will become somebody who walks with the Spirit and experiences the presence of God in your own life. When you pray, it will not just be written words that you're kind of speaking out into the air. It will become something alive and active. This walk with God can become more than you've ever experienced in your past. Great news, right? Wonderful news. Wonderful news. Why don't we experience this? Come on. Honestly, you've had all the grace you can handle. You're done. You're good. 
Anybody just want to say, you know what, if you are, you can leave now. Honestly, I mean, you can just walk right out of this, this auditorium because you don't need this thing if that's how you feel. But the fact is, we don't feel this way. I get up early in the morning and I meet with God. I have my journal, I have my Bible, and I read and I write down my prayers and I start to experience things. And I'll tell you, my heart, my heart is as hard as a rock when I wake up. It looks like that Judean desert when it hasn't rained for a year, you know? It just sits there. And you, if, you, if you sit there and think you read the Bible and it doesn't really work for you, believe me, I've been there. I, so many mornings I sit and go, oh, Lord, I know these words are alive and active, according to Hebrews 4, but I, I mean, they don't look alive and active. They look like just black print or red print on a page. There's nothing coming alive in here. You know what I'm saying? And yet day in and day out, eventually, if I will give it time, God meets me there. God changes us through those moments. I want to give you three ways that we see God transforming people's lives gracefully. Things that we can do. You can't do everything. You know, grace is free. That means you don't earn it. It, does, it means you can't do something and have God like you more. But on the other hand, there's things you can do that, become, that, that make containers for grace. If he's going to pour it out, we've got to catch it. And one of those I want to, I want to tell you is, I think it's your imagination. We've already talked a little bit about that. But the Bible is communicative of who God is, right? I believe that every person, no matter who you are, comes at God from a wrong angle. It's not the wrong angle because it's different for each one of us. Some of us, I remember when I was a kid, thinking of God as this righteous judge and uh, he looked at me like I would look at an ant, you know, and oh, there's Josh. He stepped out of line. Let me squish him, you know? Honestly, I thought that. I thought, oh my goodness, I better not mess up because maybe God is watching. Well, he was watching and I did mess up and he didn't Smush me like a bug. Others of us think that God is just a gigantic marshmallow sitting there ready to hug anybody. Let me just bring you into my loving family, we think. And we have these misconceptions of who God is. You know, some of us, we have ideas about trusting God. I heard a story a while back, a friend of a friend of mine. He said, I'm trusting God for a new pool for my backyard. Really? Okay. And my friend said, okay, when's it, when, when, you know, you're saving money. When do you think God's going to act? But he said, oh, no, it went in last week. I'm trusting God now with the payments because i got to pay for it for the next couple of years. Really? A lot of us live lives that way. We live that, our lives financially that way, and we have this wrong storyline about God, right? We leap off the cliff and we say, catch us, God. Whatever your storyline is, it's not all that there should be. God wants to inhabit your imagination with a fuller example of himself. We all have these little personal theologies, these little personal belief systems. You have one, I have one, and God is correcting them. And when we read the word, it gives him the chance to go, oh, look, God's different than what I thought. That God you thought was me, he's saying, I'm a lot better God than that. I'm more loving, I'm more gracious, I'm more just, I'm more righteous, I'm a better judge. I'm all of the things that you would probably think I'm not. Let me just tell you, I love you. But I'm also a bunch of other stuff. And some of us need our imagination to be changed. And as we read the word, and as we learn about God, it alters how we think about him. Our imagination is shifted. The second thing is we need to have our time be oriented in such a way that we can give him space. We have trouble with this. Even when we stop, our brains don't. They keep going and going and going. Anybody have trouble falling asleep at night? Because you're thinking about this, that, or the other thing. Anxiety creeps in in the wee hours of the morning as the darkness is around you. You know, God wants your time and he wants the first part of it. 
We have this booklet called the Spiritual Practices Booklet. It's available for free at our Welcome Center at any point. You can pick one up. And it walks you through disciplines, things that you can do to shape your time, to to make yourself available to the Lord's work. Scriptural, spiritual, missional, things that you can do. You can't earn grace through any of those things. God won't like you more because you do them. You'll just become aware that he likes you more. Some of you are walking around thinking, I don't feel like God likes me that much. He does. Trust me, he likes you. You just don't feel it. And you have to experience God through giving him time. Then there's this third area, communal or community understanding. You know, we have a a cult in our culture. And Christians are not exclusive from this cult. It's an individualism cult. Everything about our world tells us that we are who we are and we're responsible for us and we also deserve certain things, but it's always us, 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 you know? The TV tells us that if you, that you can deserve uh, certain things, you deserve a new car, you deserve a new type of makeup, you deserve a new set of clothes, you deserve a better self, a better physique, you should sign up for this gym. We, we constantly think of ourselves in terms of just us, right? But the Bible talks mostly in terms of all of us working together. You know, sometimes the grace in my life grows a little dry and the reading doesn't work and all of the things don't work. And I have to realize that God has called me to recognize the grace that he's pouring into somebody else. Sometimes I think he just actually enjoys it because I'm so stuck on me. He has to get me off of me and all that narcissism and say, look, I'm working over there. Do you want to enjoy what I'm doing over there or do you just want to look at you all day? Because let me tell you, I can work all across Parker Ford Church, but if you're not watching, it's like a great drama that you're not even sitting in the seats to observe. Some of us need to look around us and go, where is God active? What is God doing? Let me find him where he's working instead of going, God, please do this, please do that. You know, God says, wait, a whole lot. And it's for our good, but we don't feel that way, right? We go, please move now, God. And he says, well, I am, but I'm moving over in your friend over there. Maybe you should come watch and experience it with him. And your joy will overflow and your grace will become like that woman at the well that Jesus promised. You will experience him, but you won't be experiencing him through yourself. It'll be through the other people in your life. So he wants to reshape your imagination. He wants your time. You need to shape specific time to understand him better and to learn and to experience him more. And then you need to walk with other believers and get close enough to go, oh, what is God doing? We have these things called journey groups we're continuing to promote because we want to see people walk together through life so they can experience the grace that God does in each other's lives, not just in their own. You can see Josh Osterder if you're interested. There's also a couple things that I don't want to bring this up, but they stop the flow of grace in our lives. Now, the Bible has a great list, and I'm not going to read it for you, okay? The Ten Commandments is in Exodus 20. And if you break the Ten Commandments, you can be pretty sure that God's grace isn't going to flow in your life very easily. You're going to stop receiving it. That doesn't mean he stops loving you. That doesn't mean you walk out and you don't have your salvation anymore. What it means is you've just disconnected from him for a little bit, and he's trying to get you back. So if you've broken one of those Ten Commandments, can we, just, can we just agree, don't break them? Let's just not do it, and I won't list them, and we won't talk about that. There's a couple things deeper and a little harder to get to that I want to talk about this morning. One is if you're bitter. One, if you have unforgiveness in your heart, you can't experience God. Matthew chapter 6 says that if we don't forgive others, and Jesus has forgiven us more than we will ever forgive another human being for, right? He has forgiven more for your life. You are, you are farther distant from him than you are from the worst killer on this planet. Believe it or not, you have less in common with Jesus. He was perfect. And the first sin you committed, probably just being narcissistic, 
it was worse than anything else that you're going to commit because it's the first commandment broken. You weren't worshiping God. And so what Jesus says is, listen, you will not experience me. You will not experience the Father. You will not experience grace until you forgive those people around you. You know, I have seen miracles. I have seen some amazing things in my life. But I've come to believe the greatest miracle I ever see is a human being forgive another human being. It takes supernatural power. I myself have had these moments with God where I'm like, I can't really pray that prayer in the Lord's Prayer. You know, forgive me my debts as I forgive my debtors. I don't forgive them, God. I've had trouble with that. For whole months of my life, I've had to pray, I don't forgive. I just need you to help me to forgive. We love to lie about this one, right? Of course I forgive. I'm a Christian. No, not so much, of course. You might not have forgiven, and you might not be experiencing God this morning because you're walking in so much angst. Your heart is twisted around something that somebody did to you, and you're tied to that person. It's, It's breaking your life and the relationship you're supposed to have with God. So first, it will get in the way of grace and the flow of grace in your life if you don't forgive the people around you. The second thing, is a little tougher. And Shelby did a great job, my wife, explaining this to me this past week. She works in a shop where they create metal parts, these little pieces, you know. And at the end of the assembly line come these people called the inspectors. They, they inspect the parts. So they get an order and they, they, they take this, the, this order and they say, oh, these are the specs and we need to create these parts. They take it out to the machine guys. The machine guys create the part and then the inspectors come and they look at those parts. And what do they try to do? They try to find the flaws in each part. And those are the guys, when they find a flaw, they think they're legitimized. Do you know what I'm saying? I have done my job for today. The people in the shop failed and I caught it. It doesn't make them very popular, right? You know, we easily become inspectors ourselves. We look around us and we see. We go, I'm not looking for grace. I'm looking for flaws. And if you walk into Parker Ford Church and you look for flaws, you will find some. You will, honestly. If you look at your pastors and you look for flaws, you will find some. You want to spend the next seven days with me and watch me? Watching my driving alone. I don't want anybody to see it. You know, Shelby's van has one of those PFC stickers, you know, those little things, those magnetic. I drive a 96 Buick. It just keeps running. I don't want to replace it. Why? It keeps running well. But I think, you know, the way I drive and the car I drive, I don't even want anybody to know what church I go to, you know? (laughs) We have these experiences in our life where we love to look around and we find the graceless parts of each other. And then we say, well, that person is a hypocrite because they say they follow Jesus. And I just saw them and that. If that's following Jesus, count me out. I don't want any part of that, Jesus. I don't want any part of their church. I don't want any part of any of it because that is not grace. It wasn't grace. You're right. But if you look around finding a lack of grace, you will watch your heart grow in its lack of grace. Listen to me closely. It's easy to develop a critical spirit. It's easy to look around and say, you know what, I don't think God's really doing this, this, or this. And we become critical and we become people who evaluate every preacher, every church, every different organization that's connected to faith. And we say, well, they're not living up to it. And of course they're not. You get deep enough in any organization, in any church, in any person's life, you will find sin. And you will be disappointed when you find it. We need to become people who look for grace, not people who look for failure. And when that happens, we become people who grace flows through. 
If you're somebody here who this morning has been looking around you and going, I found that flaw, I found that flaw. If you're even maybe one of those people who enjoys it a little bit, that's messed up. Quit. Okay? Just honestly, quit now. Because God is saying, those people that you're criticizing, they're my children too. And you say, show up at at the throne room of heaven and say, Lord God, that's a messed up saint over there. And he's going to go, you don't know the half of it. Let me tell you about them. They are more messed up than you ever knew. But my son's blood has already taken care of that. Why are you bringing it up again? I love that kid. And you're going to sit here and say, I'm not going to their church because of that flaw. Or I'm not going to be in their journey group. Or I'm not going to be connected to them because of whatever. Of course they have flaws, right? And you have them too. And I have them as well. We need to put down those inspecting, magnifying glasses and say, listen, we need the grace to flow through us. And so we're not going to look for graceless acts in each other. Well, I want to flow or move forward to another set of verses and get back to Jesus. And so we're going to transition beyond that. Psalm 22, 14 and 15 is an interesting passage of Scripture. Remember last week, Tim read this verse and it's up here for you. Why have you forsaken me? Terrible, terrible words, right? When people start to die, they transition from just speaking words sometimes to the people around them. They start speaking to God. I've seen it over and over again. And my suspicion is that that's a prayer. And when we get to the line, it is finished, I think that's a prayer. And let me tell you that I think Jesus' line here, it's a prayer. Let me tell you why I think that. Psalm 22 begins with that line that that Tim preached on last week. Why have you forsaken me? But later in that psalm, we read these words. It says, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is turned to wax. It is melted within me. Can you imagine what somebody experiences when all of the sins of the world, past, present, and future, seven billion of us on the planet today, all of us having failed, when all of those sins were poured on Jesus, and then he's also hanging from a cross. These words probably fit, right? I'm poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is turned to wax. It is melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. These are the words that Jesus quotes the first part of the psalm, but you might believe he's talking about this part as well, wouldn't you think? You know, as Jesus was ministering, he ministered to all these people. Early in his ministry, there was all sorts of people following him and this grace that was flowing through him. It took the form of loaves and fish turning into this massive feast, right? 5,000 people fed one week. A couple weeks later, 4,000 people fed. And followers of Jesus keep following. But, you know, the, the crowd gets smaller and smaller and smaller. And when he gets to the cross, it's not a very large crowd at all. Where did those 5,000 people go when the Son of God, who had fed them miraculously through bread and fish, where did they go when he was being crucified? And as those sins poured onto his life, who can doubt that he felt graceless? He had walked in an amazing grace, an amazing walk with his Father, and yet here he was saying, please, don't forsake me. Where have you gone? And please, I am thirsty. And I don't think he meant vinegar and water at all. I think that thing that he had preached about in John chapter 4 and John chapter 6 and John chapter 7, all of this water that was supernaturally flowing through his life, metaphoric water that means grace, the presence of God in his life, he felt lost in this moment. The sins of the world, the darkness clouding the sky, you can imagine. Where was the grace in all of that? And he speaks these words from John chapter 19. Later, knowing that everything had been finished and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. 
a jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, but the sponge on a stalk, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. John nineteen twenty eight through 29. I am thirsty. Where did my grace go? Where did my father go? Where was my experience that I've had all of this earthly life and now it's missing? You know, grace is free, right? You have been saved by grace. Nobody earned it. Nobody worked at it. Nobody attained to the level where God said, you know what, you're standing out. Of all my children, I just like that guy. You know, you didn't earn that, right? You never got there because God loved you more than he loved everybody else on this planet. That's not what got you here. But grace, is it, is it, is it cheap? It might be free, but is it cheap? It cost Jesus the relationship with his father. Just briefly, for a snapshot, sin clouding his whole visage and his, his, his subconscious and all of his heart. He's sitting there just entrenched and ensconced in all of this darkness and in this sickness. And he says, I am thirsty. When you're thinking about grace in your life and whether you're going to give more of your time and more of your imagination to the Lord, if you're thinking about whether to forgive that person or join that community, if you're thinking about whether to inspect everybody else in your life and be that critical spirited person or not, you might think about the cost. It's not going to cost you anything, but it has cost him everything. And he sits there on the cross and he says, I am thirsty. The great news is that's not how it ends. God the Father does something more with Jesus. In Philippians 2, we read these words. Jesus, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. That's what we're reading about in the other passages. But now this, therefore God exalted him to the highest place, and gave him that is the name above every name. He's exalted to the highest place. He's about to return. We don't know when, but the Bible tells us these examples in Joel, the last chapter, Joel 3, and in Zechariah in the last chapter, and in the last chapters of Revelation, there's this picture of flowing water, a river of life flowing from Christ. There's these pictures all across the Bible that when Jesus returns, the forgiveness will flow all the way to our first sin, says Joel. The first place you ever failed God, he wants to get back there and fill your life with this grace. And no, it's not cheap but it is free it will cost you nothing the son of god gave everything including this walk of grace for you to experience that walk he lost it so that you could have it isn't that amazing join me in prayer